as I said at the beginning of the service, uh, this is um, the start of a new series that is looking into three things that uh, uh, we at Holy Trinity hold dear to us. And I'm just going to raise the height of that. Um, the first being uh, the, the Father's Word, or uh, the, uh, the Word of God in Scripture. The second one in two weeks' time will be uh, looking at Jesus and his atoning sacrifice. And the third is uh, the Spirit of Christ, the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. So let's uh, pray as we begin the series and begin this uh, talk today. Father God, we uh, praise you and thank you for your word uh, that never goes out uh, empty, uh, not accomplishing its task. But Lord, we praise you that you have spoken to us through your word and you speak to us today uh, by your Holy Spirit as he interprets and opens up your word to us. Lord, help us to have open hearts and minds as we hear your word this morning. Amen. Now, here's a question for you. Would you ever put a tin of boiled sweets down on top of a Bible? Don't ever think that sermons at Holy Trinity don't uh, treat the big issues of the day. Would you ever put a tin of boiled sweets down on top of a Bible? When I was about six or seven, my mum took me to visit uh, uh, an elderly lady who lived in the block of flats at the bottom of Higham Grove over near the Roman Catholic Cathedral. I haven't got a clue now who she was, but she was obviously somebody that my mum was uh, caring for and, uh, while she was unwell. As old, old people did back then, she offered me a sweet from one of those round tins or travel sweets, which were covered in icing sugar, very healthy. And after taking the sweet, I looked around for somewhere to put the tin, tin back down. Not finding a free, flat, free place anywhere to be seen, I put it down on the only flat surface that I had available, which happened to be on top of that strange... Uh, black leather-bound book with golden edges, which was lying on the top of her bedside table. Immediately, the sweet old lady turned to me, and I still remember to this day that slight pang of injustice as I was told off for putting that tin of sweets down on top of the word of God. But was she right to do that? Should I have left the sweets on top of the Bible? We'll return to this vitally important question later on. But in the meantime, I want to look at two other questions. First one is, what do we think that, Bible, that the Bible is? What do we think the Bible really is? Can it really be the Word of God? And secondly, if it is the Word of God, then what does that mean for our personal study, our preaching, and lastly, our evangelism? So just pause for a moment and think about that first question. What do you think the Bible is? And when you've done that, why do you think that? And I don't just mean the obvious answers, like it's a collection of 66 books written between two and 5,000 years ago by a large number of different, sometimes anonymous, human authors, although it is those things. It's also by far the most attested document of ancient literature, by which I mean, for example, there are 10 ancient manuscripts of Caesar's Gallic Wars, that's the uh, base document for Asterix and Obelix. And the earliest is dated about 875 years after the events described. In comparison, there are around 14,000 ancient manuscripts of the New Testament. And the oldest of those is dated around three, only around 300 years after the events described in the New Testament. In terms of circulation, the Bible is the international bestseller. It's also the most shoplifted book in the world. 
But if it, was, if it was just these things, then it would just be an important book. In 1991, there was a survey conducted by the American Library of Congress on the book of the Month Club. And the Bible in that survey was voted the book that had made the most difference to people's lives. So the Bible clearly has influence. You might even say that it has authority. But it's interesting that the book was vo- that was voted as having the second most uh, influence or making the second most difference to people's lives back in 1991, albeit a very long way behind the Bible, was a novel called Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand, which promoted a philosophy of pure self-interest based on the pursuit of your own happiness. Apparently, it's very popular with business leaders, and every time there's a recession, sales of this book go through the roof again. So perhaps the Bible is just one authority among many in our lives, alongside other authorities which don't always say the same thing, like popular sayings, all's well, that ends well. Superstition, touch wood. Tradition, this is the way that we've always done it. Or the Simpsons. And many people would simply reject the idea that, uh, reject even the language of authority altogether, saying there's no such thing as authority or absolute truth. And where people make truth claims, then it's all about power and the misuse of that power. And if I were talking purely about human authority, then maybe that might well be true. But the Christian view of authority is very different. Because, and here's my first point, the source of all authority is God. The source of all authority is God. You see, there's only one real source of authority in this world, and that is God. If God is our transcendent creator and sustainer, then no man or government or book, in fact, no created thing can have more authority than God. All authority in heaven and on earth is derived from God. And here I'm not saying that he's the biggest dictator, biggest, meanest dictator in town. But what I'm saying is that he is your authoritative source of all truth. That's where you would go. If you wanted to know something about anything or anyone or any course of action you might, want to fa- you might have to face, you would go to the source of truth. You know, God would be the only source of real authority in the world even if we didn't believe him or know anything about him. He just would. That's what being God is all about. His authority doesn't need us to believe in it. It belongs by its very nature to God, whether we believe it or not. But we can be thankful that we do know about God. We believe that he is a God who speaks and has revealed himself. And here we just need to pause for a moment and ask, what would we know about God if we put the Bible to one side for a moment? It's a legitimate question to ask, isn't it? Because Romans 1 makes it clear that since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. So we know that creation and the very nature of human beings themselves tell us volumes about God. And sometimes people who want to reject the reliability of the Bible... They want to pick and choose, and they say things like, well, surely God is all about love and kindness, so our main message should be the love of God. But is that the message that we would get from nature, if we only had nature? Surely not, for its nature is full of dog-eat-dog, 
and disastrous horrors as well as the wonders and the beauty of creation. Is that the message we would get from human experience? Well, in part, yes, there is joy to our human experience, but there's also very real human suffering and pain and acts of cruelty and violence. And if those things are real, then God must have something to do with those as well. So if we try to reduce the Christian message to God is all love and kindness, as many try to do, then we replace the God of revelation for the God of cheap sentiment. And the God of love and nothing else is simply not a God who matches up to our experience of the world. In fact, Romans 1 makes the point that those who rely on creation and human experience alone to draw their conclusions about God end up neither glorifying him as God nor giving thanks to him. They exchange the truth of God for a lie and end up in bondage to created things rather than the created. It doesn't make them happy at all. Equally, when modern people decide to take only selected parts of the biblical revelation and claim that the message about God is simply his love, they ignore the reality we all face, and it doesn't make them happy. Someone once uh, wrote, Religion cannot be made joyful simply by looking on the bright side of God. For one side of God is not a real God, and it is a real God alone who can satisfy the longing of our soul. And that, for me, I think, is the importance of God's self-revelation because it shows us a sovereign, sovereign, transcendent, holy God who can face up to these realities and provide us the answer to our difficulties through the terrible death of his Son, the Word made flesh. Indeed, indeed, it is only in this revealed God that we find salvation at all. According to our reading from John 8, it is this truth that will set you free. Not just the fact that Jesus spoke the truth, but the fact that Jesus is the truth. As Hebrew 1's put it, in the past God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets and many times and in various ways, but in these last days he has spoken to us through his Son, who he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. You see, true freedom is found, ironically I suppose, only by submitting to the authority of God which comes to us through Christ, to whom God has given all authority in heaven and on earth, Matthew 28, and is himself the word of God, John chapter 1. The source of all authority is God, who gave it to Jesus Christ, who in turn sets us free. Hebrew chapter 2 asks this, How shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? How shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? My second point. Christ gave authority to the Bible. You see, the Old Testament is full of phrases like, thus says the Lord, indicating the very words of God. God is said to speak for the prophets, and to disbelieve an Old Testament prophet was really to disbelieve God himself. Now, of course, these phrases you'll be familiar with, they're, they're scattered throughout the Old Testament, they refer to certain passages and bursts of speech, divine sound bites, if you like. And they don't in themselves suggest that the whole of the Hebrew scriptures are God's words. But then we come to Christ in the New Testament, to whom God's authority has been given, and we see that Christ himself lived under the authority, not of just parts of the Old Testament, but the entire Old Testament. 
Not only was Jesus obedient to its commands, but when tempted by the devil and in his disputes with Pharisees or Sadducees, he quoted it as his authority. But above all, he was shaped by its story. So Israel's story becomes his story. God's purposes through Israel and through history become his purposes. On route to Jerusalem, Jesus says, I must be on my way, for it is impossible for a prophet to be killed outside of Jerusalem, in Luke 13. His cleansing of the temple reenacts the destruction of the temple by the Babylonians. Uh, as he echoes Jeremiah's prediction of that event. And he continually applies Old Testament scripture to his own calling, what he had come to do. But he also fulfilled Old Testament scripture. You know his words. Teaching on the mountain, he said, I have come to fulfill the law and the prophets, Matthew 5. As they arrest him in the garden, he says, let the scriptures be fulfilled, Mark 14. On the road to Emmaus, he explained to the disciples the thing that the scriptures said about himself, Luke 24. And in John chapter 5, he says, these are the scriptures that talk about me. Bishop Graham Cray says, without Jesus, the Old Testament was a story without an ending. Prophecies, dashed hopes, styles and traditions hanging loosely like like a set of cut wires were all brought together in Jesus. So taking their lead from Jesus, the two New Testament writers speak of all of the Old Testament writings as God's words. So, for example, in 2 Timothy uh, 3, verse 16, uh, Paul says, all scripture is God-breathed. And in 2 Peter 1, verse 22, Peter says that all prophecy in scripture has its origin in men who spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And there are many more passages Acts 1, verse 16, for example, says, uh, speaks about Psalm 69 and 109, and it talks about them as the words which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand through the mouth of David. So if this view of Scripture, of Jesus, and of the other New Testament writers, then perhaps we should also see that the Old Testament is the very words of God. But that leaves the New Testament. What about the New Testament? But Jesus seems to have prepared the way for that too by commissioning his apostles. So John 14, verses 25 and 26 says, All this I have spoken while still with you, but the Counselor, Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have said to you. And a couple chapters later, in John 16, Jesus says, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. It seems as though the apostles were being commissioned to complete this story of Christ, begun in the Old Testament, and complete them in writings that were of equal standing to all of those in the Old Testament. So it's quite logical, therefore, when Paul, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, puts some words from Deuteronomy 25 to uh, do not muzzle the ox whilst he's treading out the grain, and some words of Jesus quoted from Luke chapter 10, 10, saying the worker deserves his wages, He puts these two things together from the Old Testament and the New Testament and he calls them both scripture, meaning technically the God-breathed words of God himself. And in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 16, at the same time as admitting that Paul's letters can be sometimes difficult to understand, Peter puts them on a par with the other scriptures. 
And in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 13, Paul explains that his apostolic speech is spoken not in words taught by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words. So ultimately, although we are only, we are only convinced that these things are true by the Holy Spirit, who is promised to all believers in Christ. 1 Corinthians 2 goes on to say, the person without the Spirit does not accept these things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to them, and they cannot understand them, because they are spiritually discerned. So we need the Holy Spirit to confirm that these things are true. Wayne Grudem, a very well-known Christian writer, said this. He said, it is not as if the Holy Spirit one day whispers in our ear, do you see that Bible sitting on your desk? I want you to know that the words of that Bible are God's words. It is rather that as people read Scripture, that they hear their Creator's voice speaking to them in the words of Scripture and realize the book they are reading is unlike any other book, that it is indeed a book of God's own words speaking to their hearts. Now, of course, this is a circular argument. We are clearly appealing to the words of Scripture to say that Scripture is itself the Word of God. But where else do we go? We can't appeal to human wisdom, reason, or to logic, or to historical accuracy, or to scientific truth, in order to unfailingly demonstrate and give proof that the authority of Scripture uh, is, is true, although many of these things might help to do that. If we could, then we would be giving to this, we would have assumed that the thing we had appealed to, be it reason or science or anything else, has a higher authority than God's own words. It just doesn't make sense. In short, I believe that the Bible is God's words written. I believe that it is true, inspired by God, and infallible as originally given. But in a sense, you don't have to understand all those technical words in order for the Bible to make a big difference and be effective and powerful in your lives. But you do need to do what John Stott calls an advance... He says, you need an advance resolve to submit to whatever scripture may later be shown to teach, an advanced resolve to submit to whatever scripture may later be shown to teach. In other words, you need to put yourselves under God's word rather than sitting over it in judgment, as so many people do. At the beginning, beginning I asked the question, what believing the Bible to be God's word would mean for our personal study, our preaching and our evangelism? So let's go on to that now. Well, first, in our personal study. So you have the words of God sat there on your shelf, full of truth, fully true of truth. Do you want to know what God thinks and what he wants us to do? Then you need to read his word, meditate on it, and imbibe it into your soul. Charles Simeon was a great uh, preacher who lived at the end of the 18th century, beginning of the 19th, and uh, preached in Cambridge. And he said that personal study of Scripture requires four things. He said, firstly, it needs diligent study, desiring to learn from them the will and mind of God. It also needs simplicity of mind. We must come to them, he says, with the simplicity of a little child, submitting our own wisdom to the wisdom of our God and our own will to the will of God. We need prayer. We must ask God, Simeon says, in the words of David, to open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law, from Psalm 119. 
And finally, we must search the Scriptures with the specific purpose in mind, in order to know Christ. The purpose in reading Scriptures is in order to know Christ, in whom they have all been fulfilled. Secondly, in our preaching. Well, our preaching needs to be expository, which is not what I'm doing today. That means that as a general rule, our teaching needs to be expanding Scripture, book by book, in a way that week by week we follow a series in the book so we can see the overall pattern of that book as well as the individual verses that we're looking at. We can see a program over a course of time which will take us through the whole Bible, the whole counsel of God's. Expanding Scripture simply means to open up the inspired text before us. That way, rather than us sitting back and deciding in a, in a smoke-filled room somewhere uh, what we think we should be talking about, we allow God to set the agenda. We allow him, through his inspired choice of subjects in Scripture, to allow him to say what is important to him rather than us saying what we want to know about. In saying that Scripture needs to be opened up, though, I'm not denying the good Reformed uh, uh, Protestant doctrine that... Uh, Scripture is clear. It has clarity. I'm not denying that it be understood by any spirit-filled Christian. There's no need for any priestly interpretation or, or the unlocking of any secret codes. But when Philip, do you remember, was, uh, uh, ran alongside the eunuch in his chariot reading Isaiah 53, and Philip asked, do you understand what you're reading in, in, in the Scriptures? The eunuch didn't say, well, of course I do. Don't you believe in the clarity of Scripture? No, the eunuch said, how can I understand unless someone explains it to me? See, that explanation, all of this, takes time and effort. To be faithful to our preaching, the preacher must get on, get into the discipline of thinking themselves back into the situation the biblical authors, their history, their geography, their culture, and their language. The the preacher's first task is always to ask what the original author meant to say in his world and in his context. But we also have to be sensitive to the modern world and the lives and the preoccupations that we all live in. And the preacher's second question has to be, what does this text say to us today? What is its message in the contemporary world? So we have to ask, firstly, what did the author mean to say to his world? And then we have to say, and what does that say to our world? And we ask those questions in that order. And if we're failing to apply our teaching to our modern lives and the way that we live our lives then we are really failing to preach at all. Scripture, whatever passage it happens to be in Scripture, is always relevant because it is the words of God. It's down to us, the preachers, to make it sound relevant, to make it come across as relevant. If the preacher gets it right, we can truly expect to hear God's own voice in and through our preaching. Finally, in our evangelism, if we believe that the Bible is the word of God, then perhaps in a way that we can, be liber- we can be liberated from the task of having to convince people that it is true ourselves. You see, in the past, most people were at least familiar with the message of the Bible, either through Sunday school or their own personal reading. So then we needed apologetics. We needed apologetics to come along to uh, convince them that what they were reading was authentic, historical, true, and had real authority. But in many ways, those days are gone. Today, most people just simply don't have a clue what the Bible says at all, which is why I'm quite excited about 
the, uh, the new project that um, Rosie and Jess have started, uh, looking at Story Sacks, which is about bringing the Bible stories to children in a new and fresh way and trying to get that into the public libraries of this city so that more people can find out for themselves what the Bible is all about. So today, perhaps, our focus needs to be slightly different. We need to begin with the plausibility of a God who can communicate with us if he wants to. The plausibility of a God who is not so bad at languages that he's unable to communicate using human language. And if he can do that, then he's capable of inspiring written communication. And if mighty, almighty God, who transcends human nature and understanding, were to write a book, would it be simple and straightforward? Would it be short and to the point along the lines of, look guys, this is, what, this is how it is? Or would it be long and messy and written from many different points of view? Sometimes hard to understand, sometimes penetrating, sometimes lost in visions beyond our understanding, but always realistic, always addressing humanity and our true condition before God. In short, would it look something like the Bible we have today? If so, then here's a story that needs to be told. But we still haven't answered our main question. Is it right to put a tin of sweets on top of the Bible? Well, I'm afraid, as you can see, I treat my Bible pretty terribly. I highlight it, I write on it, I stick things to the pages, the cover is ripped, and when I'm working, I rest my cups of tea on top of it. I'm afraid that's my rebellious nature. That little incident 35 years ago probably made me less likely to look after a printed book but probably for the first time, that old lady gave me a real sense of awe to think that this this book contains the very words of God. And for that, I'm grateful. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for the Bible. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your word incarnate, Jesus Christ, who came to this world and revealed your your love for us and revealed the way of salvation. We thank you also for your written word, your written revelation that teaches us so much by your Holy Spirit. Lord, may we be inspired afresh to go back home, to open our Bibles, to read it, and be praying that your spirit might guide us into new ways of truth and righteousness. Lord, make us holy people who through our lives demonstrate that these words are true and authentic and have real meaning for today's world. Amen.